But we're going to jump into uh, John 11 today, and uh, I wanted to, uh, you know, A.W. Tozer is kind of famous for saying that what comes to mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. Like, whenever you think about God, well, how do you respond to that? What comes to your mind? And today, in the passage, in the text today, we're, we're going to see a group of people who are faced with evidence that Jesus is God, that He is the Messiah, and then it divides them into really three groups. And so that's what we're going to study today. As we read the passage, we're going to be in verse uh, 45 through 57 of John 11. As we read this, maybe you can look and try to identify the three different types of responses. So if we're in John 11, verse 45, are you there? Amen. Here we go. Verse 45. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary, had seen what he did and believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who uh, was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all. Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the, whole, uh, for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. And he did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not only for the nation, but also to gather into one children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand. Many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. And they were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think? That he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let him know so that they might arrest him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your goodness. You've been so good to us. In the good times and the bad, I thank you that you do not leave us nor forsake us. And uh, Lord, I thank you for my brothers and sisters, how we can gather together and enter into your manifest presence and receive a word from you. Thank you that you've preserved your word for us and that you've purposed that we spend this time in John 11. And I just pray, God, that your Holy Spirit would speak to us. That you would work in our hearts and in our minds. Help us to understand and receive and obey what you call us to today. Father, I need you. I need you right now. So I just pray that you would guide my speech. I would only say what's pleasing to you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So today we see that these uh, Pharisees are plotting to kill 
Jesus. This is a conspiracy to kill Jesus. Now, over the last year and a half or so, we've been all too, you know, accustomed to conspiracies. Conspiracy theories everywhere for everything. For a dime or a dozen, some seem believable, believable, some others aren't. And some of us get wrapped up in these conspiracies and some of us don't. But today we're going to see a conspiracy that's not a theory, it's history. This is what really happened, a plot, a conspiracy uh, that resulted in the wrongful arrest and torture and crucifixion of Jesus, and that's one of the responses to Jesus. We're going to see three of them. Did you catch them? Did you catch them? There was three places where the text said uh, many people did this. Then it said some people did that. And then it finished with many people did something else. So there's three different responses. The first is that many responded um, with faith. Many respond with faith. So last week, we looked at this very famous text where Jesus um, uh, got news that his friend Lazarus had died. And when Jesus found out about it, he said in verse 14 and 15, then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. So he got news that Lazarus was dead. And he says, and for your sake, I'm glad, which is not your normal response to finding out your friend was dead. I'm glad that I was not there so that many, you may believe, but let us go to him. So he said, look, I'm glad that I wasn't there when he died because I'm about to do something that's going to prove to everyone that I am who I say I am. And it is for your good that you would believe. And when he went to the funeral, he behaved kind of abnormally. He didn't do things like you would normally do at a funeral. He didn't just go around and say, I'm sorry, and and comfort the family, and then sit quietly and go home. Afterwards, he asked to see the four-day-old body of his friend Lazarus. If you remember, Mary was like, I don't think so, Jesus. Like, he stinketh. He's been dead for four days. It's not going to be good. But finally, they moved the stone away, they opened the tomb, and Jesus called the name of his friend Lazarus. And Lazarus raised from the dead and came out of the tomb. Now, what would you do if you saw something like that? Like, run, right? Like, uh, I don't know. I don't know about that. I think you'd probably definitely say there's something different about that guy. Um... Well, many believed in him. Many, like Mary said in verse 27, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who comes into the world. And that's what we see in verse 45. Many of the Jews, therefore, so they saw Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead. So many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary, had seen what he did, and they believed in him. Many had faith. That what Jesus did to Lazarus physically, he could do to them spiritually. That we are all dead in our sins and Jesus calls us by name to believe in him and to be raised to life in Christ. And they believed in him. And that is my goal for you today. That if you walked in today or if you're watching online today and you've never believed in Jesus. You aren't following Jesus. My goal, just to be frank with you, 
Just be transparent. Just let you know ahead of time, up front. My goal is that you would believe in Jesus as the Son of God and the Savior of the world. That you would respond to the gospel with faith. And so that's what we see. It's only one verse. The first response is a response with faith that many believed in Him. But then God uses a negative response to communicate how this believing response is even possible. And so then the next response we see is that some respond with fear. So verse 45, many of the Jews therefore, so many respond by believing in Him. But verse 46, but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Some of them, so many believed, but then some were like, I'm going to go tattletale. They knew the Pharisees wanted Jesus arrested. They wanted proof against Jesus. They saw what Jesus did. They said, I'm going to go tattletale. No, no one likes a tattletale. I, whenever I was uh, young with my sister, me and my sister were riding a go-kart. I was driving the go-kart. We're going down the street. I said, watch this, because I was going to do a fishtail at the end of the street. And I do this fishtail, but the go-kart just goes boom, and then we just fall, like, crash, boom, like that, and she's on that side, and so she gets the brunt of the, the, the like, the wreck, um, but we had, like, a roll cage and buckles and helmets and everything, and I knew she was okay, you know, like, sometimes you hurt your sibling, but you, re- you really know they're okay, and so we immediately get out, I put the go-kart back, she's just crying, she's like, I'm done, mom, and she just starts walking down the street to go tell mom, and I'm like, you're okay, don't worry about it, don't tell mom, it's gonna be okay, like, you ever have those moments where you're trying to keep your sibling from telling your mom, because no one likes a tattletale, I got grounded from the go-kart that day. No one likes a tattletale. Not even Jesus likes a tattletale. That's what's happening. They're tattling. Ellie just moved to Texas, so I can talk about her now like that. Verse 47. So some of them went and, and, and told the Pharisees what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. So they gathered this council. And the council here is the word for Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin is a group of, it's the highest judicial body in Jerusalem. And uh, this is a group of Pharisees and Sadducees. And they believe there are two different theological groups, but both religious leaders. The the Sadducees were the majority, but the Pharisees were a, um, a fierce minority. They were a powerful minority. And so they all get together for this council to talk about what Jesus is doing. And just notice here that that they said, um, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. Now, now notice they didn't refute the validity of the miracles of Jesus. They, they didn't d- dispute. Remember back in chapter 9, whenever Jesus healed this man who was born blind, and, he, and they tried to refute the miracle? And they're like, were you really born blind? He's like, yes, I was born blind. And they're like, well, let's ask your parents. We think you're lying. And they ask his parents, and his parents are like, yeah, he was born blind, and now he sees. I don't know how it happened, but I know that Jesus guy did that to him. And so they figured, okay, let's stop refuting his miracles because that's not working out for us too well. Like behind the scenes, they aren't even debating whether or not what he did was really a miracle. They knew that he did these things. Yet instead of wrestling with who this person is, Who is this person that says he's the Messiah and then performs works 
to prove he's the Messiah. Instead of wrestling with this, is this the Christ? Is this the Messiah? Is this the one we've been waiting for? Instead of doing that, you know what they do? They seek to protect themselves. They're like, man, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take, us, take away both our place and our nation. So they said, hey, he'll take away our place. Our place is probably most likely referring to the temple, but that most definitely also refers to their position in the temple, their position of influence, their position of power, the position where they are making a living off of this job they have in the temple. They say our place, the temple, our position of power, our nation. Notice that they viewed it as their nation and their temple rather than God's nation and God's temple. Like weren't the, the Jewish people, that weren't those God's people? Wasn't the temple God's temple? But no, they, they then changed it and they're like, no, um, this is ours. There's this quote uh, from a commentary I was reading. I thought it was so good about this. And it, it talked about this empty religion they had. It said, practiced by people. Empty religion is practiced by people who come to church, they give money, they say and do the right thing, and are moral, but have no relationship with Jesus. It's always, it's always revealed by a person's focus. If someone has truly been converted and following Jesus, his focus will be first on Jesus, second on other people, and finally on themselves. So here, the fact that their focus is immediately me, what I'm going to lose, my nation, they don't care about the people. They don't care about protecting their people or God's people. They, they care about themselves. He goes on to say, when our decisions are not based on clear biblical standards of holiness, but how they will affect our comfort and convenience, then we're committing the error of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. That they had lost their way. They had lost their purpose. Why they were religious leaders. They lost their purpose. They lost their focus. First on God, second on others. They were self-centered, self-concerned. And when we forget that all we have is God's and all we do is for God, we begin to live for ourselves. We begin to live and, and, and believe that church is for me. That I go to church to receive something. That um, work is for me. And if... My boss asked me to do something I don't want to do. Well, I might just quit my job because work is for me. That, that my life is for me. That relationships are for me. And when relationships quit benefiting me primarily, then I might go move on to other relationships because really all of this life is all about me. And whenever we put the focus on ourselves, we lose sight of Jesus. And this is what they did. Many Christians, we can come in and out of church weekly and never put the focus on Jesus. Never put the focus on God. Always concerned with self. But this is Christ church. 
This is Christ Church. This is, uh, my life is his. Anyways, verse 49, he says, um, But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all. So this is Caiaphas. And uh, he, was report, he was appointed by Roman authorities. That's kind of how the high priestlyhood was working at that time, where the Roman authorities would appoint their high priest. And uh, he was the high priest for 18 years, which is pretty bizarre because uh, that's the longest term of a high priest in the first century. You, they typically wouldn't last that long. They'd be, the terms were shorter. But um, this kind of shows that Caiaphas was a good politician. He, he, he worked well to appease Rome and, and the Jewish people. He was a good middleman between them. And he kind of helped uh, them, and they helped him, and so he worked well with them. 18 years he was the high priest. Um, he, actually, it's interesting because he was the last legitimate high priest. I mean, if you want to call him legitimate, he probably got his position not in the, a legitimate way, but... But he was the last legitimate high priest. The high priests were the people who would go before God uh, for the people. They were kind of represented God to the people and the people to God. And they were kind of the middleman, the high priest was. And, uh, but he was the last legitimate one because when Jesus died on the cross, what happened? The veil was torn. And G, the, the sacrificial system was ended. And Jesus is now our true and better high priest. And so... He's the last one in the way of the old covenant because Jesus is replacing that whole system. So Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, he was the high priest for many years. I think he's saying that year because it was this very important year, the year that Jesus was crucified. The last year of the high priesthood. He said to them, you know nothing at all. Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. So he's like, you know nothing at all. He's, he's pretty strong here in his language, and he's, he's getting very impatient with the Sanhedrin. You have this group of this ruling body. They come together, and they, they are trying to get rid of Jesus, but they can't quite decide what to do. And so he's getting impatient with them. He wants to expedite the process of killing Jesus. And so he's like, you don't know what you're doing. Let's just kill the guy and save the nation. It's interesting that their reasoning for wanting to get rid of Jesus is different privately than it is publicly. Publicly, what were they saying that they wanted to get rid of Jesus? They were saying, we need to get rid of him because he's blasphemous. Behind the doors, that's not what they're saying. Behind the doors, they even recognize, hey man, these miracles are legitimate. But behind the doors, they're saying, we need to get rid of him because he threatens our power. He threatens our status, our position, our influence. They thought if they could get rid of Jesus, then they could save their nation from being squanched by Rome. They, they thought if more people believe in Jesus, then Jesus might start a revolution and the Romans might get mad and they're going to come down on the whole nation and just take everything from them. And so they're like, if we get rid of Jesus, we'll sacrifice him. We'll save the whole nation. Everything will be okay. Ironically, it didn't work. Because even after they killed Jesus, Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 AD. The temple was destroyed. Nothing would be the same after that. It's pretty incredible. 
They tried and they failed. They responded to him in fear is, is kind of the point. They responded in fear. A fear that God would take my control. I want to be in charge of my life. I don't want anyone, including God, telling me what I should and shouldn't do. I want control. And if Jesus is going to get in the way, I'm going to get rid of him. And, I, and we struggle with the same things, don't we? We love our independence. And I'm all for independence. I'm all for freedom. I think we should fight for our freedom. I believe that. Um, but the Christian, we've got to understand as a Christian, we are to not be independent from God. We're to be dependent on God. Surrendered to God. And so if we start acting independently of God, we're in a dangerous place. And... Uh, so control and then fear that God will take my comfort. So I don't make decisions based on what God wants or what's best um, or what's holy. Uh, I, I, I make decisions based on what's easy. What's comfortable. What's convenient. The decision is not based on what's the right thing to do. What's the most pleasurable thing to do. Jesus was threatening everything that they knew. And they weren't willing to give it up to follow Jesus. What are you willing to give up to follow Jesus? What are you willing to give up to follow Jesus? I mean, he said in, in chapter 12, if we go just skip ahead a little bit, in chapter 12, verse 25, he says, whoever loves his life will lose it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Or as Matthew says, he who tries to save his life will lose it, but he who loses his life for my sake, Jesus says, will save it. And so coming to Christ is actually a leaving of all the things that are in your hands. It's, it's a willingness to surrender everything to Jesus. What are you willing to give up to follow Jesus? Are you willing to give up your control of your life? How do you know? How do you know if you're willing to give up your control? Are you willing to do something? And I'm just talking about little things. I'm not talking about just giving $5 to the guy on the corner who's asking for something. I'm not talking about just little things. Are you, are you willing to make like major shifts in your life and things that you don't want to do because you truly believe God is convicting you that this is the right thing to do? Are we willing to let Jesus really sh shape and move and shift our life, control status? Are you willing to give up your power, your comfort, your reputation? I mean, sometimes whenever you come to Christ, all your friends don't know Jesus. Up to this point, you've probably made a habit of maybe making fun of some of those religious nuts. And so you come into Christ, maybe your family, maybe you're an unbelieving family. And so if you come to Christ, people in your family are going to hate you. Are you willing to give up your reputation? Are you willing for people to believe that you're a religious nut? A Bible thumper? Are you willing to give up your reputation? These were the religious elite. These were the people who knew the Bible best. All of them were well studied. 
These would be the people who have their PhDs in theology and ministry. These were the people that everyone looked up to. These were the people that everybody asked their questions to. These were highly religious leaders. But they were lost. They didn't know Jesus. One author said, you can be religious but lost. You can memorize scripture and still be ignorant of its truth. You can say all the right things but have a heart that has not been transformed by the power of Jesus Christ. That is possible. It's possible to just know so much, yet know so little of who God is. And uh, that's where these guys were. They were unwilling to forfeit. They were responding out of fear. I'm going to lose something. And yet God used them in his plan of redemption. Isn't that amazing? Look at verse 50. He says, he says, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being the high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. So he says this thing. He thinks it means one thing. He means one thing by it, but it has a completely different meaning in the redemptive plan of God. It's this, I'm sure you've learned in school this, uh, this thing called double entendres. Right? It's, it's the same phrase, same exact word, could mean two totally different things. Uh, are you familiar with this at all? Let me give you some examples to refresh your memory. Um, here's some news headlines, um, kind of humorous. News headlines, double entendres. Let's look at these. Criminals get nine months in violin case. You need a little tighten there, isn't it? Right? Um, teacher strikes idle kids. You're just going to hit the lazy kids? <laughs> These are news headlines. Miners refuse to work after death. Like, even in the grave, my boss won't leave me alone. A juvenile court to try shooting defendant. So that's how we handle things now, huh? Just, just shoot the defendant. I like this one. Two sisters reunited after 18 years in checkout center. Counter. They have a long time to be in the checkout, don't you think? Sometimes you feel like it's 18 years. Uh, last one. Kids make nutritious snacks. Like cannibalism now? I thought, didn't think you're supposed to eat the kids. It's two things. Same thing. Two different meanings. Caiaphas was meaning one thing by his words, not knowing that God was using his very words to prophesy what Jesus would accomplish on the cross. See, Caiaphas uh, thought that he was saying, if we just get rid of Jesus, we'll save our nation politically. We'll save our, our position, our status. He wasn't even realizing that he was talking about the final substitutionary atonement of Jesus. Here he says... Verse 50, for it is better for you that one man should die for the people so that the whole nation shouldn't perish. And he prophesied in verse 51 that Jesus would die for the nation, for or in place of or on behalf of is what that word means. This is the language of temple sacrifice. And as we see in verse 
Now, 55, the, the Passover of the Jews was at hand. So they're getting ready to celebrate the Passover. And temple sa- and Passover, what they would celebrate was this sacrifice that was made. That Jesus, God was going to free them from their slavery in Egypt. There was nine plagues that came on the nation of Egypt. And the last one was the taking of the firstborn son of every household. But what God told them is that if you take a lamb, you kill the lamb, you spread his blood over the, your doorposts, and you go in that night, the angel of death will pass over you, and that lamb would die in your place, and your firstborn son will not be taken. The Kind of the thing there is that to save the life of their son, they had to take the life of a lamb, that there was a sacrifice for their salvation. That's what they're celebrating at Passover. And then another big uh, kind of sacrificial um, feast day in their calendar was the Day of Atonement. And this is when one day a year, the high priest, would, uh, they'd bring two goats in, and he would lay his hand on one goat and confess the sins of the nation and send out that goat into the wilderness. That's called the scapegoat. That's where we get the phrase scapegoat. It's this... You send off the sins, send them out, the scapegoat, and then the second lamb, the second goat, they would sacrifice for uh, the sins of the nation. So there was two goats. Um, the goat that was released, the scapegoat, pictured expitiation. It's a word we don't use ever, but it's a theological word that means the removing or the covering of sin. That the goat took the sin... You know, it pictured this, the goat taking the sin away from the nation. Expitiation. And then the goat that was sacrificed pictured propitiation, which means uh, the pacifying of the just wrath of God. There's two goats. The taking of the sin away and the sacrifice on behalf of them taking the wrath of God. Whenever sin is forgiven, someone must pay. Maybe you've had some questions about all the sacrificial system in the Old Testament and the sacrifice of Jesus. I mean, we know the the gospel, but like, why is that all? Why is that all? Why is that the way it's set up? And it's because anytime sin is forgiven, someone has to pay. Like, if I go into the parking lot and I smash your windshield in. You might be like, Pastor, what are you doing? And you might even forgive me. I'm so sorry. So sorry. You might forgive me. But somebody has to pay for the windshield, doesn't it? Whether it's either I do it or you decide to do it or somebody else decides. Somebody's paying. Forgiveness always requires somebody to pay. And what John John the Baptist says in chapter 1, verse 29, when he sees Jesus coming, he says, Behold... The Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. You see, both of those things, the Lamb of God, the one who sacrificed for our sin, takes the wrath of God on himself, pays the price for the sin, and he takes away. He's like the scapegoat who covers and takes away our sin. This is substitutionary atonement, that God in our place for our sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin." who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He takes the wrath of God and and the consequence for our sin, the wages of sin is death, 
the wrath of God on himself, and he gives us his perfect righteousness. That's quite a deal. Amen. I don't know why everybody's not like, I'm in. I'll take that all day. Free gift of God paid for by Jesus. So he says, he did not say this of his own accord, but being the high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. Not only for the nation only, though, but also to gather into one children of God who are scattered abroad. He's talking about all people, the Jewish people uh, and the Gentile people who are um, everywhere. It's not just about the Jewish nation. It's about I'm here to reach the world. I'm dying for all people. John 1, 12 says, and all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. I mean, we like to use the phrase children of God, don't we? We like to talk about the dignity of people, like we're all just children of God. Aren't we all children of God? Well, the reality is that all humans are not children of God. We're all creations of God. We're all um, created in the image of God, and therefore we have dignity and value and worth. But we're not all children of God. Here, the Bible tells us that you only become a children of, child of God by believing in the Son of God. But who all do who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become, become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of the man, but of God. And we see a very similar thing in chapter 10, verse 16, where he talks about, he says, I have another sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. So he's, he's given this idea that there's more than just the Jewish people he's trying to say. He, the, the gospel is going out to all people. He has the Jewish flock, but I have another flock I'm going to bring, and we're going to become one flock, one people of God. The point is that Jesus died for all people. He didn't die to make us Jewish. Whenever you come to Jesus, you don't have to become Jewish. He died to make one new people, the body of Christ. You have time to flip to Ephesians real quick, because I want you to get this. Um, in Ephesians, every time I have you flip in the Bible, I'm tempted to sing a song about books of the Bible, but I'll spare you today. Ephesians chapter 2, and in, from verse 11, I'm just going to read this text because it's very clear about how God, He's not trying to make Gentile people, Gentiles are non-Jewish people, He's not trying to make non-Jewish people Jewish people. He's making a new people. Let's look at this. Um, Ephesians 2, verse 11. Therefore remember that at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hand. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. So he's like, okay, Gentiles, you've never been a part of the people of God. You know that, I know that, we all know that. You've never been a part of the promises of God. Verse 13, though, he says, But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself, our peace, who has made us both one. He's made us both one. Jew, Gentile, one. 
and it's broken down the flesh, the dividing wall of hostility. There was always this hostility between Jews and Gentiles. He says, but I've broken down that wall, verse 15, by abolishing the law of commandments and expressing in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man. Everybody say new. New. It's new. He's not trying to incorporate Gentiles into the Jewish people. He's making a new man out of the two. So he might make one new man. I have to find back my place now. I lost it. All right, one new man. We're in verse 15. In place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, and therefore killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him we have both access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure is being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Now, whenever this was read, I have to believe, when this was read to the Gentile church, they were like, yes! This is great news! We're not others! He considers us his people, his children, and they've got to be like, yes! And we read that and we're like, oh, that's nice. That's nice. Thanks for pointing that out. Thanks for pointing that out. Because as Americans, we think we are the people of God. Don't we? I mean, as Americans, we're like, Jesus was American, wasn't he? He's returning in Jackson, Mississippi. That's where he's coming back. We'll be waiting. And what we've been removed from is that for all of human history, we were others. God's people were the Jewish people. The nation of uh, Israel was God's nation. And everybody else were the others. The Gentiles, the pagans. And Jesus came and said, yeah, but there's good news. I'm not just coming for, not just for this nation, but also to gather into one children of God who are scattered abroad. All the people who believe in me and come to Christ can be saved. It's good news. Verse 54. I just want to pause here and say, this response is a response of fear. Response of fear. And in their response of fear, in the horrendous things that they said, and did to Jesus. In their response, we actually see how God makes it possible for us to respond in faith. That he died on the cross for our sin, in our place. And that if we believe in him, we can be children of God, forgiven. And, uh, and so God uses even evil people and their evil schemes. He uses it in his plan to save us. And in verse 54, it says, So there, Jesus, therefore no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness, to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. So at this point, he's kind of, you know, everybody wants to kill him, and he knows this. Apparently some news got to him from 
the ruling uh, decision of that council, and he's like, you know, I'm just going to hang back a little bit because my time's not yet. He knows it's coming. He's headed to the cross, but it's not yet. So he goes to this town um, called uh, Ephraim. Now, I don't think that this is on accident, an accident. You know, John, he doesn't include everything in the life of Jesus. John tells us at the end of his book that I'm like including specific events so that you will believe that he is the Christ. So I don't think he just accidentally or flippantly just like added in this word Ephraim, this town's name. Where does the word Ephraim first appear in the Bible? It first appears in Genesis um, 41. It, the word Ephraim, the name Ephraim, means fruitful. It means fruitful. And it means that because in Genesis 41, Joseph was naming his sons. And he says that he named the second, uh, the second son he called Ephraim. For God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. In the land of my affliction. And Jesus, at this point, from this point on, his face is towards the cross. He's entering his hour, the hour of his affliction. And he knows that God will make him fruitful in the land of his affliction. That in this, the worst moment of his life that is coming upon him, God will use that to save the world. That he will be fruitful in the land of his affliction. He, he sets his eyes on the cross. I love one author said that um, Jesus is like a lion and the cross is like his prey from this point on. He's headed towards it. And that's what we're going to see the rest of the Gospel of John is him headed towards the cross. And he will be fruitful. All right, so some respond in faith, many respond in faith, some respond in fear. The last one is this, and we'll wrap up, is that many respond flippantly. Many respond flippantly. Look at verse 55. Now, the Passover of the Jews uh, was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think? That he will come to the feast at all? So, so these are people who just kind of, you know, they're just kind of flippant. They're just kind of, they're not really, they're not in. They don't believe. They're not like, they don't hate him. But they're just kind of, you know, casual. Uh, lethargic. Lukewarm. They're kind of apathetic. Like, eh. And instead of, they come, to the, they come to Jerusalem to purify themselves for Passover. If you were like, if, if you had become ceremonially unclean, you would go to Passover early to get all ceremonially clean for the feast. And so you have the, 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 the Jerusalem swells from about 25,000 and it swells by a couple hundred thousand people at Passover. So, the, so all these people are coming in to purify themselves, but instead of consecration where they're setting themselves apart and getting ready for the feast instead of consecration the people were caught up in conversation and in curiosity they get together and they're like hey what are you guys you know the talk of the town is jesus and these people who want to arrest jesus and so they're just like well, let's just talk about him well, what do you think i don't know what do you think it's kind of flippant it's kind of lukewarm they're kind of going through the motions they're doing the religious duties. 
It says that they were purifying themselves for Passover, not knowing that the events of this Passover would actually provide purification for them. Totally. Jesus died, the idea is Jesus died in your place for your sin, and that requires more than flippant curiosity. What do you think? What do you think? I don't know. What do you think? That's what they're saying. Verse 56. What do you think? Is he going to come? Is he not going to come? What do you Let's watch the show. Jesus requires you to be all in. Requires you to be all in. Um, I, I just love that, that song that we sang, new song today. Um, It says, I'm sorry that I'm just going through the motions. You ever find yourself leaving church and you just felt like, man, I just went through the motions. I don't know that I really connected with God. I just, I, I did the thing. I just went through the motions. You ever find yourself, you're doing the thing. You're just going through the motions. And that's what's happening here. They go through the motions. We're doing the religious thing. We're going to the Jerusalem and we're supposed to go because this is the thing that you're supposed to do. And But their hearts are far from God. The hearts aren't engaged with the things of God. Are you imperfectly but increasingly following Jesus and how you live your life? So here they, they were purifying themselves for Passover, but ultimately Jesus would purify them with what happened on Passover and what God calls us to is a life of purity. He calls us to a life of holiness. He calls us to a life of righteousness. To pursue it, whatever the cause. And are we increasingly following Jesus? We're doing it imperfectly, but increasingly. Is he purifying your thoughts? Is he purifying your motives? Is he purifying your actions? Do you know that, that there's not going to be a pop quiz when, when you get to heaven? You're not going to like get to the pearly gates... And, you know, St. Pete's supposed to be there or something. So St. Pete, he's like, he's like, hey, we'll just sit right there. And here's a quiz. And how much do you know about the Bible? And uh, how many times did you, what's your attendance in church? Like, there's no pop quiz to get into heaven. That really to get into heaven is not about what we know. It's not about what you believe. Because what you truly believe only works itself out in what you actually do. It's not about what you profess to believe. It's about has he changed your life? Have you gotten off the throne of your life and surrendered to control to Jesus, whatever it cost? Whatever it cost. The, cost, the call to follow Jesus is a call to respond with more than flippant curiosity. Oh, that's interesting. It's a call to die. Any who saves his life will lose it, but if you lose your life for my sake, you will save it. If you believe on Jesus, repent of your sin, and believe that Jesus is the Son of God who came into the world and lived perfectly according to God's perfect design and laws. And he died on the cross in our place for our sin. And that sacrifice offered the ability to cover our sin, 
to remove our sin as far from the east as from the west and offer forgiveness and righteousness to you. And he rose from the grave, proving that he is God and conquering death and the grave. That is the gospel. And if you repent of your sin and turn to Jesus and embrace him for the forgiveness of your sins, you will be saved. Would you bow your heads with me? Father, I thank you for our time in your word. God, I thank you that we so clearly were able to see today how, um, how you died on the cross in our place. That you took the punishment for our sins. What we did, the consequence of what we have done, you took that on you. You paid the price. And you did it so that we can all have life in your name. God, I just, I just pray that we'd believe in you. That this would be good news to us. It is good news. That we'd believe it. That we respond to it. In faith. That we'd confess it with boldness. And that we'd live it by the power of your Holy Spirit. I pray that you'd help us to walk with you this week. And I pray that you'd save the person who needs salvation today. We all need it, but I pray for the person who's never received it, that they'd receive it today. That they wouldn't lay their head down tonight without doing business with you, without getting right with you, Jesus. The Holy Spirit, move as only you can in our life. In Jesus' name.